Born on America's darkest day of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes ever since. When a first responder or military service member doesn't come home and young children are left behind, Tunnel to Towers pays the mortgage on the family home to lift the financial burden. For severely injured veterans and first responders, Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes, enabling severely injured heroes to move around their homes more independently. Through the Foundation's Homeless Veteran Program, Tunnel to Towers is providing housing and services to homeless veterans. More than 3,300 were helped last year alone. Because all veterans who honorably served, whether in peacetime or war, deserve our nation's gratitude. People who put their lives on the line for our country and our communities need your help now more than ever. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good and never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of this country's heroes. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Buck Sexton Show. We have a fantastic guest for you on this one. Very exciting. Liz Wheeler, the host of the Liz Wheeler Show, is with us now. And we've got a lot of things to talk about, Liz. The country uh, needs our help. I think we got to save America. How are you doing? Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, J6, let's start with that, because as you and I both saw, there's this footage that Tucker and his team over at Fox are releasing in pieces. I, for me, my, my top line on this was I thought I mean, I wrote an I wrote an op ed a couple of what was it now? A couple of years ago saying that anyone who says January 6th was an insurrection is an idiot. And that's coming from somebody who kind of studied insurrections and coups in the intelligence world. So I have some some sense of what an insurrection looks like. And that was the actual title. Anyone who calls it an insurrection is an idiot. And people are like, yeah, that's right. So it didn't, there was nothing that changed my <laughs> mind about it. I just felt like we're seeing even more that they called this an attempt to overthrow the United States government. And there's all these people who are just walking around like calmly chatting with cops and being friendly and respectful apart from the vandals and the people. There were some people who were doing the bad stuff, but this is not how a coup happens. No, I mean, I I would take it even one step further now. Maybe the second installment of your op-ed says that anybody who anybody who perpetuated the myth, the falsehood that this was an insurrection should um, should should be banished from at least public commentary because it's not just idiotic. You're not just stupid if you fell for this. This was an outright lie. I mean, this was information warfare that bureaucrats and elected officials in the United States government, people who are supposed to represent us waged against us. They told us deliberate lies, knowing information that contradicted their lies, but knowing that we didn't have the information to directly contradict. I mean, the the Brian Sicknick video that Tucker played is probably the best example of this. The whole narrative that this was a deadly insurrection, that, that people died, that these Trump supporters murdered police officers was false. And they knew it was false. They knew that the, the, the man, Brian Sickness, this police officer who died a couple of days later of natural causes, was not murdered by Trump supporters who broke into the Capitol. They had accessed that tape. That was the jaw-dropping moment for me, Buck when I was watching this Tucker investigation is they can see on the Capitol computers who else has viewed particular moments on this tape and other people had already viewed this, meaning the January 6th committee knew they were lying and lied anyway because you and I didn't have the this video footage to disprove them. And there's also this, this part of me that as this all comes out, um, they lied 
and were completely unrepentant about it with the Russia collusion stuff, too. I mean, at this point, you have to wonder, why would anyone believe any major allegation of Democrats like, say, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Schumer and all the rest? They still go about their days acting like they didn't fabricate really what was a, a crazy story. I mean, it wasn't just false, which it obviously was about Trump working with the Kremlin and stealing the election and all this stuff in 2016. It was an insane story. It didn't make any sense from the beginning. And yet now we see those people have created a narrative of, oh, well, you guys tried to overthrow the government. No honest person can look at those videos and think this was an attempt to overthrow the United States government. Like, that's just a, that's a crazy thing to say. Well, it's, it's of course crazy. And it's like the psychological experiment, the thought experiment of people who lie. Do they know that they're lying after they've told the lie the first, the second, and the third time? Or do they actually start believing their lie and thus just become peddlers of delusion? I have no idea when it comes to Adam Schiff. He seems both dishonest and dogmatic. Maybe he believes the lies that he has invented, just like maybe Liz Cheney believes the lies that she's invented when it comes to the January 6th committee. Um, and, and the narrative that they tried to paint in prime time produced by a former, what was it, an NBC producer telling the American people that this was an attempt to overthrow the government. It clearly was not. These people were looking for a constitutional remedy. Buck, that's the part that always gets me about this. When the left says, oh, Trump was talking to his lawyers, was reading briefs from different people trying to figure out if there was a way that he could stop the certification of the Electoral College. You can argue that there was something he could do, or you can argue in good faith that there wasn't anything that he can do. But the fact of the matter is, is he was trying to wiggle around within the bounds of the Constitution to find a way to delay the certification until he could investigate what more thoroughly what happened in the 2020 election. And it's funny to me, it's the same thing with January 6th. It's funny to me when these people say, oh, they were trying to violently overthrow the government. No, they weren't. They were trying to work within the bounds, except for, you know, the, the few hooligans that committed vandalism, and that was wrong. Most people were peacefully protesting, exercising their right to peaceable assembly in order to uh, redress grievances with the federal government, which is codified into our founding documents. I, I don't ever like to engage in uh, exaggeration because when I say something that's really forceful, I want everyone who hears it, who you know listens to me to know that I, I really mean it. Right. And I, I try to keep that in mind yeah. doing radio or, you know, even doing a, a podcast like I am now. But to me, uh, certainly for any of the January 6 defendants who did not engage in violence against the cops. And let's be clear, the violence was not it was not lethal violence. They did not beat Sicknick to death with a fire extinguisher, which was reported ad nauseum in the very beginning of this. It was constantly, oh, they beat Sicknick to death, which was a horrible thing. And I remember when I heard that report, thought, oh, my gosh, well, what are these guys doing? Of course, total lie, as we find out. But on any of the nonviolent January 6th defendants, to me, they're political prisoners. I mean, when you hold somebody for months at a time in solitary confinement, in special administrative segregation or whatever they're calling it in the D.C. gulag that they're operating, and they haven't actually hurt anyone, you have to wonder what, what can we call this other than political prisoners? I mean, I think that is the accurate term. It certainly is the accurate term. One of the things that I was thinking when Tucker was airing the part about the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, who became kind of the face of the whole thing, at least in the mainstream media's uh, narrative that they were perpetuating, is when they were when they were showing this video of him just like 
basically palling around with these Capitol police officers. They were trying to open doors for him. They were walking next to him. They weren't doing anything to even try to verbally tell him, hey, hey, dude, you can't be in here, let alone restraining him or being more forceful. They were very casual. Their demeanor was very unthreatened. I thought to myself, was this video footage used during his trial? Because he's in prison right now. He was sentenced to four years in prison. He is currently incarcerated. And this is in my opinion, exculpatory evidence to the extreme. I'm not sure how he could have been convicted given this evidence, especially when he said, he said, listen, I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to be in there because police officers were opening doors for me. How can you sentence a man to four years in prison, make him the face of this so-called deadly insurrection that wasn't deadly and wasn't an insurrection when this video footage exists? Yeah, there there are people, uh, you know, MSNBC hosts or analysts or I guess a- analysts, you know, uh, commentators. Uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, as you may recall, said uh, we should shoot people like like uh, Chansley. And I mean, not only is that horrific, but but also when you think about how Ashley Ashley Babbitt was shot, I mean, that woman was murdered, and they made it they made it go away effectively from a legal from the legal side of things. The system made it go away because. If people realize that they just that someone opened fire on these protesters, you would say, really, this is the protest that they open fire on. They just start shooting people. Yeah, I find it really strange that one of the only places on the Capitol that doesn't have multiple ang- angles of camera surveillance is outside the speaker's lounge. That seems really shady to me. And I don't know if this is just another level of security that we're not supposed to know about, that it's a different camera system, or why would there be a blind spot outside of the speaker's lounge? That's where the shooting of Ashley Babbitt happened. And that's why we didn't have video footage, why Tucker couldn't air any footage of it, because he doesn't have it, because that's a blind spot in the Capitol. And that seems really suspect to me. I, I, everything else that we've seen makes me 100% sure that the narrative coming from the mainstream media and the January 6th committee about what happened to her, that she was threatening someone's life and that the police officer essentially acted justly in his use of lethal force makes me sure that that's incorrect. But how are we ever supposed to prove this if there's a blind spot in front of the speaker's lounge? Is that, am I wrong here? Is that strange? It's only strange if you think that the two cameras outside of Epstein's cell malfunctioning when he was supposed to be under 24-7 surveillance and kept (laughs) on... You know, that they just had and the guards were asleep and the cameras malfunctioned, you know, and the first person to ever commit suicide in the Manhattan Correctional Federal Correctional Facility just happened to be a guy with a Rolodex full of names of people. You know, I don't know if you think one is strange, Liz. I, I think you can think I think the other one looks a little strange, too. I, I do think that that's a, a fair thing to um, point out. I, I want to ask you about a, a story um, that that you've been shedding a lot of a, a lot of light on out of Ohio in an elementary school and students there who well we'll get to this the students who were who were made to pledge allegiance to Black Lives Matter I want you to tell everybody about that story more than a movie is back with season two of the award winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies I'm your host Alex Fumero and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies from The Godfather Andy Garcia he has the smarts of Vito the temper of Sonny the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael to the OG spy kid Alexa Penavega you had Carlo Gugino who's the coolest mom ever you had Antonio who's handsome amazing charismatic and then Carmen and Juni I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me to the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Liz, tell everybody about this story um, the out of the elementary school in Ohio. Tell everybody what happened. Yeah, so this happened about an hour and a half north of where I grew up. I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio, and at an elementary school in Springfield, Ohio. This elementary school is called Kenwood Elementary School. People in Ohio are probably going to be familiar with this. There was video footage that was uh, requested based on based on anecdotal reporting, video uh, footage that was requested by the local affiliate that showed several black students at this school. Keep in mind, the background of the story is it is an elementary school. Meaning this is not 17 and 18 year old thugs who are still in high school. These are small children. Several black students at this elementary school were caught on camera taking white students on the playground outside, physically assaulting them, throwing them to the ground and punching them in the head, making them kneel and then pledge allegiance to Black Lives Matter, saying those words, Black Lives Matter. The videos of this are obviously horrible. There is not audio, but you can plainly see what's going on here. Thankfully, police are pressing charges here. And when I saw this, I thought probably the same as everyone else thought. I thought, well, this is truly horrendous. It's so despicable to think of this happening to children. But my first thought was it's shocking to me that this kind of violence happens in an elementary school. It seems to me that, you know, I'm not to date myself, not to sound too old here, but it seems to me that when we would hear, hear stories back from my day about violence in school. It usually was in schools um, in the inner city. It was usually in lower income areas where there was a, a higher crime rate. And it was usually 16, 17, 18 year old men who were committing the violence in this school. And I thought, why is this happening out of an elementary school? So I ponder this. I, I, I watch this video about a hundred times and I think to myself, you know what the conservative movement, including myself, mea culpa here, has missed as we've missed the manifestation of critical race theory when it comes to black students, right? So we constantly talk about critical race theory in our schools and country, how it's this poisonous ideology that tells white children that they're inherently racist based on the color of their skin, not based on their thoughts or their actions, but just based on the fact that they're white and therefore they're enjoying privileges that have been built on the shoulders of white supremacy before them, this ridiculous notion. And we tell black children through critical race theory that they are fundamentally oppressed and victimized. But Buck, so often we focus on the false accusation that's levied against the white children, that they're told that they're racist, they're told they're evil, they're told they're irredeemable, there's nothing they can do about this. But we forget the impact that this has on black children, that black children are being told through schools by teachers as if it's truth that they're less. They're being told that they're victims. They're being told that they're they're uh, being demeaned on this cultural level based on the color of their skin. And this is the outgrowth of that. The outgrowth of that is a almost racial revolution where black children assault white children in the name of Black Lives Matter, which, as we know, is a is an organization built on critical race theory. If we as conservatives don't recognize this, we're going to start seeing this pop up, not just in schools, but in our culture all across the country. What do you think can be done in response to this? I mean, is this a an all of the above effort from parents uh, to teachers to administrators re rethinking the uh, obviously getting rid of CRT in schools? But, you know, how do we address this? I just feel like for so many parents uh, out there, I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but there's this sense of 
okay, so these things are happening. Kids are being told this. White kids are being told this. Black kids are being told this. You know, there are different different narratives about how they're supposed to think about um, each other and about race relations in America. And it's poisonous stuff. So how do we change that? Like, what is what is changing that actually look like? Well, I think there's a cultural change and then there's political change, right? Cultural change is if you possibly can homeschool your kids, get them out of these institutions. Don't let them on TikTok. Don't don't send them to public school where this is firmly embedded into, if not the curriculum, then the counselors and the administrators in the idea of right and wrong and justice. Don't send your kid. It's it's too toxic. It's it's not possible for them to go to public school right now and escape this kind of this kind of poison. So homeschool them, pull them out of school, and they will be much better for it. That's sort of the cultural side of things. The political side is we should ban this. I mean, this is racial superiority and racial inferiority ideology. This is something states can ban from public schools. This isn't even controversial to think that it can be banned because critical race theory is not being taught as some abstract idea in public schools. Teachers aren't saying, okay, this is critical race theory and critical race theory teaches A, B, and C. They're teaching it as if it's true. They're teaching it the same that they would teach one plus one equals two. And they don't have any kind of right, any kind of um, any kind of protected privilege that allows them to teach falsehood as truth. We should absolutely ban this. Have you noticed the, the trend where uh, the, we, we keep at different at different moments when we find what the teaching uh, the teaching curriculum may be at a certain school with regard to CRT or or you know diversity equity and inclusion stuff in the workplace. We find these manuals, we find these these lectures, and so often we hear from the left is, well, that's not really happening. Or this isn't really a thing. And then it reaches this critical mass where we've had enough of them over, let's say, like a three-month period or a six-week period. And they say, yeah, that's right. We're teaching this stuff because this is the truth. And it just feels like it goes through this cycle because they don't really want to defend it, but they want to keep doing it. So when we find enough of where this indoctrination is happening... For a moment in time, they'll they'll actually have to say, yeah, that's right. This is this is justice. This is truth. This is social justice. But then as as time passes, they go back to the what are you talking about? We're not really basically it's like a a cycle of gaslighting that the left engages in. Yes, that's the exact phrase that I was going to use is it's a cycle of gaslighting. They go from gaslighting to digging their heels in. But you can tell, Buck, that it's a farce because whenever there is a state that bans critical race theory from the school curriculum in public schools in the state like Florida did, you'll hear the left simultaneously claim that they don't teach critical race theory in school, in which case it shouldn't be a problem if it's banned, right? And at the same time, they'll say, but these bans mean we won't be able to teach the reality of slavery in our nation. So they're contradicting themselves right there. They're hoping just to distract people and confuse people as they continue to indoctrinate our children. Fortunately, I think the last two years with COVID, as brutal and as tyrannical and as damaging as they were, I mean, they really did open parents' eyes to what's going on in the school system. And parents on the left and the right, it's not just a, a purely partisan divide, don't like what's been going on and are, are motivated to change it because they don't want their children turned into racists or having their gender mutilated behind their back. Well, yeah, on, on that point, by the way, the other, that, that same cycle I see happening, uh, a little bit of a variation on it with the transgender agenda for kids stuff uh, or adolescents where there's this 
you know, why are you so focused on it? Why, why do you care so much? This isn't happening that much. You're exaggerating. It's not happening everywhere. Why are you saying it? And they act like we're the ones who are obsessed with it when meanwhile they're doing it all over the place. I mean, they actually, this is happening in states all across the country and in institutions all over. They're pushing this in different hospital systems. They're pushing this in different school systems. And of course there's the, you know, hairy middle-aged men dressing up like women and putting fishnets and thongs on and, and are shaking their behinds in front of small children. And somehow we're supposed to be okay with this, which of course is completely insane and we're not okay with this, but they do the same thing. They push. And when we notice what they're pushing, it's why are you, why are you so obsessed with it? Why do you notice that? Yeah, well, let's be very clear about one thing. The left with their LGBTQ plus agenda never wanted equality. They never wanted tolerance. They never wanted to simply be included in polite society and otherwise mind their own business. That was always just a camouflage to trick well-meaning but naive conservatives into shrugging their shoulders and being like, okay, sure, we'll allow gay marriage. But that was never the true intention of the lobby. The true intention of the lobby, I mean, it's an ideology, right? It's not just a sexual orientation, as they would have you believe. The LGBTQ plus um, lobby is an ideology that wants to force you and I not just to tolerate it, not just to celebrate equality under the law, but to celebrate the ideology. And the ideology is queer theory. It's no coincidence that critical race theory and the transgender stuff surfaced at just about the same time. The the racial superiority or inferiority stuff that's taught to kids in school, the, the foundation, the underpinning of that, the ideological underpinning is critical race theory, just like the transgender stuff that's taught in school. The ideological underpinning of that is queer theory. It's intentional because critical race theory first comes in and destroys the sort of inherent identity of a child saying, hey, you, you should hate your parents. You should hate your grandparents. Everything of who you are based on the color of your skin is wrong and evil and you can't redeem yourself. And so it creates this identity crisis, quite literally, in children. And then in swoops queer theory saying, actually, your identity doesn't have to be tied to an immutable characteristic. You can redeem yourself if you separate your identity from your essence. If you choose a neo-Marxist transgender ideology, then you become a victim instead of being the oppressor in this whole system. So it's so messed up, but it's not a coincidence that they surface at the same time because one without the other wouldn't truly both destroy children and simultaneously transform them into Marxist revolutionaries. So you are a woman. I am not. What do you think when somebody who is as not a woman as I am decides maybe a couple of months ago that he is in fact now a she and a woman and wants to lecture the world. I mean, I'm not even talking about people who just do this privately, but want to go out on TikTok and, and interview, say, the president of the United States and explain their their womanhood to people like you who are an actual woman. What's that like? Yeah, it's insulting. It's demeaning. You're talking about Dylan Mulvaney, the TikTok star. What does he have? Like 10 million, 10 million followers on TikTok yeah. went so viral with his Days of Girlhood series that President Biden invited him to the White House. And um, Dylan Mulvaney got President Biden to say that he doesn't think that that states should have the right or parents should have the right to decline uh, gen gen bodily mutilation surgery in the name of gender ide ideology and identity. It's truly awful. It, it really does erase. It really does erase women. There's sort of a, a funny thing going around on Twitter in uh, since International Women's Month started in March, whatever that is supposed to be. 
And the the spokespeople for a couple of these organizations are actually transgender, meaning born male now dress as women and call themselves by women's names, but still men, of course. And it's funny because International Women's Month has become Women Plus Month, like LGBTQ added a plus for all the other all the other <laughs> identities and ideologies. The idea of being a woman has become Woman Plus. So. Uh, my friend James Lindsay likes to say the future is not female. The future is female plus where biological men who dress as women have taken over, taken over the roles and the achievements and the spaces of actual, actual women. It's funny that the left who claims to be a champion of women uh, latches onto this. Yeah, I just I know that if I were to say want to give a, uh, a public lecture, if I said I self-identify as a like a, as a Hispanic American, I mean, I, I am not. And I do not. But if I were to say that and say on on a day, you know, I know Cinco de Mayo is not really a, that big of a day for the uh, Latino community in this country. But um, if I were to pick a day and say, well, let's say it's Latino Appreciation Month, we'll just that, which might even be a thing. I don't even know. And I went around saying, speaking as a Latino, here's what I think. I, people would rightly both be they, they would think it was bizarre and, and they would be like offended. That's just really weird. Right. Why? But in in this case, it's supposed to be wonderful that somebody who's been a woman for never mind that they're not actually that Dylan Mulvaney is not actually a woman, been a woman for a couple of months. Like maybe maybe learn, you know, a woman in quotes, maybe learn a few things before you're going around telling everybody about womanhood. But even, you know, that's obviously piling crazy atop crazy I mean, the stereotypes I that Dylan Mulvaney traffics in are actually really insulting like that you prance around in a sports bra and high heels in the middle of a field doing your blush in a high falsetto voice yeah. and that you cried sending an email all of these different things are actually like sexist negative stereotypes that that yes. have been trotted out against women and yet he he's embracing them pretending that that's what makes him a woman listen i i'm actually not trying to personally demonize dylan mulvaney i feel very sorry for him. I think that criticism against him is certainly warranted and even harsh criticism because he's he's merged his personal psychiatric disorder, his personal mental health struggle with political activism. And therefore, political activism is always you 100% okay to criticize. But on a personal level, like these people need help. These people are suffering from serious mental disorders and we as a society are harming them further by indulging them. Yeah, well, at some point you either speak the truth about who Dylan Mulvaney is and to the mental health issues that are clearly on display or you have very little argument to deploy in defense of why a 14 year old shouldn't get puberty blockers. That that this this is where we actually have yeah. to understand that the the battle goes next it's not just like oh this is somebody who's an adult and it's fine and they're doing their thing no the same ideology and the same agenda is used to convince as you know now that the the thing that I, I want to talk about the medical community scientific community world health organization in a second I just before we get to the WHO pandemic treaty which I know you've been diving deep into uh, the fact that you have doctors going along with the assigned at birth gender thing right like the the most basic thing in the world when a baby's born is, you know, the doctor holds the baby up or whatever and looks at the parts and says, it's, you know, it's these parts or it's those parts assigned gender at birth. And they have they have people with MDs now that go along with this stuff and, and they should be ashamed of themselves. I want to ask you about the WHO in a second. But first, the uh, a word from our sponsor, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been honoring America's heroes ever since the tragic events of 9-11. The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. 
This year alone, hundreds of Gold Star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year, and more than 1,500 are receiving housing and services this year. And the Tunnel of the Towers also educates the next generation through the 9-11 Institute, telling children from kindergarten up through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day and the history that came after. Join Tunnel of the Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tunnel of the Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. All right, Liz, let it rip. The World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty. A lot of these things, I hear any of these things and I think, hmm, I don't know. You put them together. I'm worried. What's going on? Yeah, those are three words you never want to hear together. World Health Organization Pandemic and Treaty. It's a recipe for disaster. So negotiators from the Biden administration last week traveled to Switzerland to negotiate what is called the zero draft of a pandemic accord. That's what the World Health Organization is calling it because they're trying to avoid using the word treaty because if it were a legitimate treaty, it would need to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. There's nothing the Biden administration wants less than to put this in front of a vote um, in the United States Senate. So the World Health Organization is calling it a pandemic accord. The Biden administration sent negotiators to Switzerland and along with other member states of the World Health Organization, they approved this zero draft. It's the rough draft of this pandemic accord. What this pandemic accord does is it centralizes a response to future pandemics. And before a pandemic even happens, it gives the World Health Organization the unilateral power to declare a global pandemic emergency. So say we have another virus that leaks from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Say we have another virus that was funded by Fauci. Say we have another virus that was tinkered with, with gain of function experiment or directed evolution experiments, if you want to use the words of Pfizer. And that becomes, that, that it becomes unleashed on the world somehow. The World Health Organization and not the U.S. government. The World Health Organization and not the CDC. The World Health Organization and not state governors would have the power to declare over the United States a pandemic emergency. Once they have done that, once they have declared unilaterally this emergency in our sovereign territory, then they get to decide the political response. Not just the medical response, that too, but the political response. They get control over lockdowns, over forced masking, potentially over vaccine mandates. They get the first and authoritative stance on what kind of therapeutics are used, what kind of supplements are recommended, whether a vaccine is developed in order to combat this particular virus that the World Health Organization has declared constitutes a global pandemic emergency. This pandemic accord, which is not a legitimate treaty because Biden refuses to have the Senate ratify it, actually takes control of our country in this event. It, it, it usurps our sovereignty, our representative republic, and gives it to a World Health Organization that right now is controlled by a man named Dr. Tedros, who himself is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Buck, there has rarely been anything that the Biden administration has done, and they've done a lot of bad things that's as dangerous as this. Do you think that the Fauci's, Tedros, go down the list, Rochelle Walensky, board members of Pfizer, right? I mean, throw anybody you want in the mix here that was involved at a high level with the COVID policies and response that were really, it was really globalized as we know, right? There was a reason why you had similar things going on here and in Australia and in Europe and in South America and you go all over the place. 
Do you think they think they they did a good job, or do you think they don't care because they should be in charge no matter what, so results don't matter? I don't think they were measuring on the same standards that we are. They weren't looking for a balance between protecting public health and using government resources to respond to an emergency and balancing that or marrying that with the civil rights of Americans and the limited power of our government as codified in our constitution and in state constitutions. They're not, they're not judging themselves by the same standard. They're technocrats. They think that our representative republic is bad. They don't like our form of government. They think that we should be ruled by the fiat of the, ex- the so-called experts. I'm putting that in quotation marks. They think that they know better than we do. They think they should control our lives. They, I think they're delighted with how the pandemic response went. They successfully coerced the federal government to issue vaccine mandates on a vaccine that they rushed through that had no efficacy, that had a harmful side effect profile against a virus that wasn't equally harmful for every single person in our country, in fact, wasn't harmful to the vast majority of people, had a very high survival rate, really just harmed vulnerable populations like overweight people and extremely elderly people or immunocompromised people. They're delighted that they were able to squash free speech and shutter people's businesses, take hold of the economy in the name of an emergency that they instilled fear in us and that in our fear, we willingly surrendered our our freedom, our our individual sovereignty, our state sovereignty. This is exactly what they've been trying to do slowly, inch by inch, grain by grain for decades. And yet here we have this pandemic, this COVID-19 virus unleashed around the world, and they were able to do it in a matter of months. That's how they are grading themselves. That's why they are unashamed of all of all of our concerns, like our businesses being closed down and our children being masked at school and all of the rest of it. They're delighted because they finally got what they want, which is all the power. I want to ask Liz Wheeler about how Liz Wheeler got into this whole game of trying to save America and uh, the Liz Wheeler show and all the other things you're up to. So I want to finish up with that in, in just a moment. But for all the T-Mobile subscribers out there, they're investigating a data breach that exposed the sensitive personal information of 37 million customers. But after the New Year, cyber hackers grabbed that data without notice. Could include customers' names, emails, billing addresses, phone numbers, a whole bunch of stuff that... If cyber thieves get a hold of, they can take out loans or credit cards in your name. How do you protect yourself against this? One way is with LifeLock's help. Their online identity theft protection includes monitoring the web 24-7 for regular activities and new account openings. If they see unusual activity in your name and you're a LifeLock customer, you'll get an alert. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. And no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. I've relied on them for years. They come through time and time again. Join now. Save up to 25% off your first year with promo code BUCK at lifeflock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. That's promo code BUCK when you go to lifelock.com or just call the number 1-800-LIFELOCK when you use BUCK. You get a 25% discount. Liz Wheeler, so where'd you come from? How did all this happen? How do you get you know a massive <laughs> uh, Twitter following, digital show, TV, uh, podcast following? How did the masses come to learn of Liz Wheeler? Tell me the story. Oh, my goodness. Well, it seems like it's been a long time in the making, but I really wasn't that interested in politics until very late in high school. Um, I, I started following the presidential primary in 2007. This is right before Barack Obama was elected. And I remember this this newcomer, Obama, to the national stage. Sure, he was a senator, but he was a newbie. I remember watching him compared to Hillary Clinton. Everyone thought Hillary Clinton was the shoe-in for the nominee. And she, of course, was was not. And the moment that he won that primary, the moment he became the nominee, I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, 
all of the things that are important to me are at risk. If this man becomes president, I'm going to do what I can to fight for our country. And when I say that, it's it's a little bit ironic because when I said do what I can to fight for our country, in high school, I was diagnosed with a really serious uh, autoimmune disorder, autoimmune disease. And the reason that I was able, the reason I'm able to do what I do today is because of the free market economy, because we had my family, my parents specifically, my mom and dad had the freedom to, my dad operates a small business. He was able to save and invest his money how he saw fit versus the government telling him what he needed or not. And when insurance companies didn't cover the treatments that I needed to manage my autoimmune disease, he was able to use his money in the free market to get me the, the, the alternative treatments that weren't offered by big pharma that enable me to live the life that I live today. And I, I, I was sitting there watching this primary, watching them talk about socialized medicine, watching them talk about high taxes, watching them talk about Barack Obama and the Democrats, about all of these big government policies that I realized it was the, it was kind of like that aha moment for me that, wow, the Democrats aren't just immoral when it comes to abortion. They're not just immoral when it comes to uh, gay marriage. They actually threaten the life that I have been able to enjoy. So from there, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on from the left and from the right, educating myself. I wrote a book in college um, with a, a group of young conservatives from around the country about why we are young conservatives. I served in local government in college as well. I was a commissioner on the Board of Zoning Appeals, um, which was just as, just as funny and quirky as it sounds. After college, I, um, I worked actually for a veteran advocacy company, not, not in politics at all, but I was always itching to get back in politics. Kind of wanted to be a speechwriter, but came to the conclusion that if I wanted what I wrote to be read in the way that I wrote it, then I would need to be the one that presented it myself um, because you know how speechwriters, they make these beautiful documents and then politicians rip them up and tear them up. So I ended up getting into media. If anyone's listening and they're a young, young man or woman, college age, or maybe just in their 20s, and they were to ask you, how do I get into this game? Should I get into this game? What would you say? I would say yes, if you have the fire in your belly to actually fight the fight, and if you are well equipped to do it, don't get into this game for fame and fortune. Get into it because you want to be a public servant, because you know this buck, of course, but it's not always pretty. You know, you get threats against your family. Your reputation gets unfairly smeared. It's a grind to work in the, to work in media and to work in politics. So um, all the fame and all the glory and all the money does not take that away. Um, if you want to get into this business, especially media, first educate yourself. I'm not talking about going to college. I'm talking about study read everything, every book that you can get your hands on, because what we don't need in the conservative movement or in politics in general is just another person bloviating another another bit of hot air. We need people who not only understand what they stand for, but they understand why they believe what they believe and are unflappable in their principles. If you feel like that is you to a T, then please come and join us. We can always use more young people um, in the conservative movement, in media who are committed truly to what makes our nation great. But um, think very carefully yeah. about what you're getting yourself and your family into, because it's not always a bed of roses. I usually ask, especially if it's uh, people from former intelligence community, and I was never in the military, but a fair number of people from the military side, because it's a, some similarities in the transition of being military, going civilian to being a former CIA person and going uh, civilian, uh, you know, just working for the federal government in that kind of realm and capacity. And I always tell them, I'm like, do you have a wife? Do you have a mortgage? Do you have debts? 
<laughs> think about all those questions first before you start a media career. And then do you love this? Do you love the work? Meaning the the research, the writing, the do you love it so much that you're willing to do it a lot of the time for free, do it a lot of the time for very few people watching or caring and being told the whole time while you're not making much money and not a lot of people are seeing you that you're probably not that good at this and maybe you should do something else. And if the answer to all those questions and is, is I love it anyway, I don't care. Great. Come join the circus. That's what I usually tell people because. The first few years usually suck. <laughs> not not suck in terms of like it's not amazing and important and cool and great, you know, for the work. But I think people see like in, like in everything, people see the end product and they think, oh, that would be awesome. Like, I want to have a show. And as you know, from having a show for years at One yeah. America and now a show on your own, it's like having a show. I think when I started radio, I I'm not I'm not actually guessing I, I had like, uh, well, it was less than 20 people listen to my first radio show. Three hours. Hey, less that's than 20, 20 people. people. Look at that. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I was like, because, and I knew that number, yeah, by yeah. the way, because it was streaming, it was digital. So we could actually see it on a website. It wasn't a terrestrial radio show. So that's what I always tell people. But I mean, I love it, and you love it too. And here we are. So, you know, there is, I'm like, I, I agree with you. The more the merrier, as long as people know what the merriment actually looks like, especially in the early stages. Liz Wheeler, everybody, check out her show. Um, where, where's the best place people to go to see the Liz Wheeler show? You can go to LizWheelerShow.com, but it's everywhere you find your podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Rumble. Uh, look me up, Liz Wheeler Show. Subscribe. Let me know what you think. Uh, if you're if you're new, I can't wait to meet you. If you're a, if you're an old follower, then you know we've been we've been together for years. Let's keep up fighting the good fight. Liz, thanks so much for being here, hanging out. Appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes and their families since 9/11. Hero first responders and service members who serve our communities and our country. Those who die in the line of duty or are catastrophically injured. Veterans who fought for our nation's freedom only to return home, fall on tough times, and become homeless. Heroes like Buffalo, New York firefighter Jason Arno and his family. Arno was killed while protecting his community, battling a warehouse fire. He left behind his wife and a young daughter. In their darkest hour, Tunnel to Towers provided Arno's wife and daughter with a mortgage-free home. The foundation lifted a financial burden enabling them to stay in the home where they made memories with their hero. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Support the families of America's greatest heroes, the families of fallen first responders like Jason Arno, plus Gold Star families with young children, catastrophically injured service members, and homeless veterans. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org.